Stars Podcast, a podcast about video games and being alive. My name is Bob. And my name is Matt. And uh, we are your hosts. Yeah, I'm here for one of those things. Video games or being alive. <laughs> By the end of this episode, we will hopefully <laughs> figure out which one. It's true. So this is your first podcast. This is the first podcast. The This is the flagship podcast. Yes. This is the Nina Pinta Santa Maria. This is the one that started it all. <laughs> Yeah, and well, we're really happy that you're coming along for the ride. Zero stars, zero point one. The time is now. So we've never done this before. No, we are homegrown amateurs. Yeah, but we wanted. It's talk... also my favorite Reddit thread. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, we're off to a good start. Yeah, hi mom. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so. We wanted to start by talking about who we are, and there's no better way to do that than by telling you, the avid listener and fan, both of podcasts and of this one specifically, the games that we played first. And in that, you can hopefully get to know us. When you say first, you mean literally the first game that we have, like, a a memory of having played? Yes. Okay. Let's do it. I can do that. All right. So, do you want to go first? So does that mean one? that I get to go first because I can do it? Because you came out of the uh, game so strong. Yeah. So I have a very clear recollection of being um, man. I must have been. I don't. I wasn't in kindergarten yet, or maybe it was very early in kindergarten. Um, but it would have been like right around 1991 or so, maybe 92. It was right around the time the Super Nintendo came out. Yeah. Um, and video games were pretty effectively off my radar. I think my parents had sort of like had no interest in them, and so they had sort of inadvertently kept me from engaging with them. And one night they were going to a dinner party at a friend's house, and they couldn't um, they couldn't find a babysitter. And I remember very clearly my mom saying to me that there was a toy that I could play with while while, they, while the adults were all having dinner, and that she thought I was really going to like it. That toy was Nintendo Entertainment System. <laughs> and I remember the three games I played, um, Mario Brothers was the very first one. I, like, kind of just took to it like a fish to water. Uh, Mario Brothers Duck Hunt. Still don't understand Duck Hunt. Uh, and you get to shoot the ducks. That's, that's, that's it. I don't like it. I think I was trying to shoot the dog the whole time. It doesn't um, go well. No, it doesn't. I don't remember what happens. I don't think I don't even remember whether we were playing with one of the gun peripherals or not. Can I've, you play that gun with? I mean, that game without the gun? I can only assume that there must be some way to play that game without the gun because Duck Hunt used to come with the with the. It was a pack system. in. It was a but pack I in. think it was a pack in with like Rob Wasn't the Robot it? and the gun. Oh, okay, well, I definitely they did not have Rob the Robot. I would have remembered that. Mm. Um, the third game was Batman, the tie into the movie. Whoa, Tim Burton's Batman. Um, which you got to play as Michael Keaton playing everyone's dream Um, (laughs) the ideal yeah it was a but I remember really liking the Batman game yeah yeah that was the one that I remember standing out to me and then eventually I got my own Nintendo which I realized only years later had been second hand but I finally got my own Nintendo right that Christmas um, when the Super Nintendo came out interesting yeah so I like wasn't able to my family didn't have cable. I didn't watch like any TV. Uh, you weren't seeing those, like, those Nintendo commercials. Third grade. Really, I wasn't. Yeah, yeah, I never saw any commercials. I don't think I was either. Um, and so it's like my experience with video games all came through my cousin's houses. <laughs> and the first... So 
the first video game I remember wanting to play, my first exposure to video games, was being in my cousin's house in their basement. And I didn't actually even play a game at this point, but they had like one of those weird little like racks that holds all of your NES cartridges. Oh, yes. You know, yeah, yeah, those yeah, like yeah. hard plastic things. Black hard plastic. Yes. Yeah. And at the front of it was the gold Zelda cartridge. And I didn't know what that thing was, but I was but obsessed with it. like a crow, you were drawn yes. to the shiniest <laughs> object in the rack. This has never changed. <laughs> and I just, I remember I would sit there and I would just stare at it while we, like, we were, other people are doing other things. I don't know what this object is. But I was just like, there's a shield on it. That's badass. You like swords and shields. I love swords and shields. Yeah. Yeah. And it was shiny, and I was just, like, desperate to know, like, what was inside that thing. Um, it would be, like, four years before I would play Zelda. Uh, the first game I remember playing is my uncle played tennis on the okay. NES, and he was obsessed Wait, with was, it. Oh, tennis. I was thinking of, like, tennis for two. No, like the no. ancient. No, no, not yeah, like. Okay, long. this is like this is like a tennis. This is like yeah. NES, and it is just called tennis. Yeah. And he had an NES, and he only owned tennis, and he played it all the time. It's interesting to think of a time that I think existed when we were kids, at least. And I remember my dad talking about how like adults enjoyed playing video mm-hmm. games, like in a, that he like you know that, that adults would buy. A console, like as a sort of like a curiosity, and just like have it around, and yeah, just play one game. Well, it's or something like that, which is just sort of astonishing to me because I think of it as such a like, in, you're introducing yourself to an ecosystem when you purchase, yeah, a console, and they were, you know, my my dad just played Tetris on the Game Boy. I think a lot like, of people just played yeah. Tetris on the Game Boy, and I mean, I think that what's what's really interesting is that we've gotten away from this idea of pack-in games. But yeah. I think that when you had pack-in games, like, in a lot of ways, that allowed the machine to be used for a single purpose. And I think that, like, a really good example of this in the modern era is the Wii. Because, like, uh, Wii the Wii sports. is a Wii sports machine. And your grandma has a Wii because at some point somebody was like, Grandma likes to bowl. And they got her this thing. It came with one game. And your grandma is never going to buy Super Mario Galaxy. Yeah. Unless if you buy it so you can play it at grandma's house. Exactly. Which is, or your parents buy it so that the kids can play it. That's a good point. And it, it actually, it makes me think of Breath of the Wild and uh, just like, the the fact of the matter is, is that I know you and I both bought Switch, a Nintendo Switch, so what's the plural of Switch? Switches? We bought Switches. I, I guess it would I be guess Switches. I guess it would be Switches, yeah. yeah. Uh, we Switch went out I. in the field and we grabbed two Switches, switches. for our father. <laughs> Um, but we, we bought those as Zelda machines. Oh, essentially. No and the install base of The Legend of Zelda probably exceeds the number of Switch that they I, are or it did there. it did until recently, I yeah. know. So it's I mean, talk about like not that, that I necessarily think that should have been a packing game, but yeah, I think Nintendo has always been a pack in I mean, there's always been sort of like a dearth of Nintendo titles compared to third party and well, their like, install, the install base tends to be extraordinarily... I'm using that term correctly, right? Uh, I think it would be that there is a dearth of third-party titles on the console. Well, that too, but also comparatively, there are few Nintendo... There are fewer Nintendo titles compared to... Like, Nintendo only produces a handful of titles every year. They produce, not produces, they, produce, they, they develop they a handful. They publish and develop they, more games than Sony 
they publish point. and develop more games than Microsoft. Well, that's not hard these days. That's true, yeah. but like, there's definitely an element to it where they're coming out of the gate and you're purchasing their machine with the intent to play their games. And yes. you're getting the machine because it will play all the Nintendo games. And in some weird way, if the way to live the best life is just to show up at the end of every Nintendo console cycle, buy the Nintendo, and get all the Nintendo games... And then it's like one of those Atari 12-in-1 joysticks that you buy, except yeah. that every game is awesome. Yeah. Oh, this is true. No one buys, like, no one buys a Nintendo console so they can play Call of Duty. No. Uh, that is true. Yeah. Though, honestly, having the Switch, that's a world I want to live in. But You want to live in a world where people do? I would switch for if, Call of Duty? If they would re, re, uh, put that uh, Call of Duty 4 re-release oh, the on Warfare the Switch remaster. and we could just play it against each other on the couch. That is... This brings up like something that I have become thoroughly engaged with, which is the idea of couch co-op in which we both have our own screens. Mm-hmm. I think that it kind of does, like... It's like... the uh, All of the frustrations of... of Goldeneye, where you're just like, stop looking at my screen! <laughs> you were looking at my screen! Like, that just becomes a moot point. Like, Yeah. And at the same time, I think that when, you know, playing Goldeneye, part of the game and part of what makes that game good is that you can see each other's screen. So it's yeah. this weird, like, flip, right, where, like, inherently, part of that game is that you can see the other person's screen and that you're kind of cheating all the time. And yeah. so it just sort of changes what type of game you're playing. Um, and I love that. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree. That the, there's a charm to that, which is why I would not actually want to play that. This and other reasons are why I would not actually want to play GoldenEye. I can think of honestly. a lot of reasons not to play yeah. GoldenEye right now. Um, <laughs> or ever again. But, I mean... The number one reason is the world is not enough. But that's a story for another time. Well, even that, just like, because it is broken. Yes, that, that is the epitome of a game that is broken and excellent. And excellent for it. So, I guess, what do those games say about us? Our first games, what do they say about us as people who play video games? Why did we stick with it, and why are we making this podcast right now? You know, I think it's less about the games that I did play. Well, first of all, it's fun to play as Michael Keaton playing Batman. Again, every child's dream. Every child's dream. Is to be a middle-aged Michael Keaton. I've been sort of, like, like basing my uh, male pattern baldness on Michael Keaton's male pattern baldness. You know, it, I didn't realize it until you said it. And now it's it's. And also, I'm going to start styling my eyebrows like him as well. Um, strong eyebrows. Strong eyebrows. That man acts through his eyebrows. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> let's. I mean, I think that like I'm uh, like what the games that those specific games say about me is probably less important than what you're seeing the shiny Zelda cart says about you. But what I find interesting is the fact that my my mother, who I'd had no interaction with games whatsoever, uh, you know, up to this point, and was about to be introduced into... Around that same time, um, I had a babysitter who also introduced me to the King's Quest games, the Sierra games. Oh, wow. That was kind of like a big life-changing event for some people have other life-changing events with their babysitters this one for me was yeah that was a terrible terribly dark road to go down um because they murdered them then, yeah <laughs> true crime <laughs> zero stars colon true crime colon the podcast um the serial I think music starts 
I think it's a. I think it's interesting just that that my mom understood that there was going to be something about this, and I am by far reading too much into this. Like I'm sure that my mom was just like, kids like this toy. Yes, my son is a kid; he will like this toy. Yes. But there was something so immediately engaging about games that I don't think it hooked my friends in the same way. Um, yeah. I mean, I had to be put on a timer, as I would do with my kids, for the for amount of time I could spend playing games. Because, especially once, you know, it, I got into story-based games, um, I was, you know, I needed a timer. Yeah. Because I would lose hours. Yeah, I just, like, at the time, you know, I always, my mom would be kind of concerned because we would go to my cousin's house once I finally started actually playing their video games. Uh, she would be worried because I wouldn't do anything else. And I would always tell her, like, oh, no, it's just because this is the only time I get with them. <laughs> and so then eventually, somehow I conned my parents when I was in fifth grade. They got me a Nintendo 64 with Ocarina of Time. And uh, cartridge was gold. Uh, <laughs> was that, like, right when the game came out? It was. It was that Christmas. It was that Christmas. So, it so, were you, so you were tracking that game's release. I just... So it's funny. I, I wasn't really tuned into video games at the time. But I played Super Mario 64 at my cousin's, and then uh, I just was in a Target or something, mm-hmm. and they had a huge sign that was like, there was a new Zelda game, and I was just like, you know, my brain shoots back to that gold cartridge. And I still, at that point, like, I'd maybe played Zelda, but I'd not, like, played Zelda. Yeah. And I just, I was like, I need to do whatever it takes to play this. Like, I need to make good on the promise of that cartridge in the closet. Uh you know when was was that 96 or 97 I, I want to say it was Christmas of 97 but it could be 98 it was the same year as Metal Gear Solid it's interesting I discovered I think that the two um maybe the most seminal video game in in like my history despite how we all may or may not feel about it now is Final Fantasy 7 <laughs> which was I I accidentally stumbled across Final Fantasy 7 like hanging out at a friend's house because I had an N64 um, I was one of the lucky few I was in 6th grade yeah. and I had an N64 basically just to play Super Mario 64 and Goldeneye and I went to a friend's house and he had a Playstation because I think his, his dad was basically like this is the adult one and yes. he wanted to be able to play like the Playstation games but he yes, didn't yes a mature so game kid, like Crash Bandicoot <laughs> for mature adults <laughs> yes I think it was more like Top Gun or whatever like had been out Tekken Ace Combat dude Tekken Tekken is good there was one old well, no, I think it, there was like a Top Gun game dude I think for for Playstation that had like FMV maybe it was Top Gun but it had like 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 it was like looking you were playing your PlayStation, but it could have like T V real people yeah, on it. Yeah, it could. Um the beauty of the C D. I remember he this friend had rented Final Fantasy Seven. I don't think that he was like particularly into it. And I played Super Mario RPG at this point, mm. which was possibly my favorite game up to that point. And I was like, Oh, I know what an RPG is. Yeah. Uh and that thing blew my socks off <laughs> no more socks I, like i was <laughs> i was just like socks again. like my the like like my understanding of what video games promised changed from that moment on like i and i think it is similar to sometimes how I, how i felt about breath of the wild really yeah. 
was that I was suddenly my understanding of like that that this can instill a sense of scope and depth yeah. that I had never before experienced. Well, it's funny because like for me, I think that that similar moment, and I think that this this does get to the core for you, the listener, of the difference between us, is that that moment for me was playing Super Mario sixty four in a store right after it had come out. Mm-hmm. Like, I was at like a Target. Apparently, my whole life revolved around Target. At the time. Oh, we didn't even have Targets in New England. Uh, we had one, and it was like very exciting um, because I, I grew up in relatively rural Ohio, so the Target was a big deal. But um, <laughs> we had Caldor. That sounds like a laxative. <laughs> <laughs> it, it kind of, it kind of was. Um, you walk through the man. The old man says, "Welcome to Caldor," and your bowels loosen. <laughs> yes. Just a bit. In fear. Um, so, yeah. A lot to unpack there. Well, but, I think that but I, it's, a mechanic, it's a mechanics versus... Story. Story. Yeah, because and I, think like, that, I just remember thinking that these JRPGs... Like, I didn't understand until much later in life why anyone would want to sit down and pick things from a menu when <laughs> Nintendo was making these games where I pressed a button and my dude murdered someone else. <laughs> like, and it was just such a stark difference to me to yeah. be Mario and the controls are perfect and there's no slop and you were just like, I choose a place for Mario to go, Mario goes there and he does exactly what I want him to do yeah. as opposed to this like, well, sometimes I'm in this big open map that's not to scale and sometimes I'm picking things from a menu and at no point am I just pressing a button and doing the thing I want to do. So, But I think that like, I think that the, there is a level of nuance to Final Fantasy 7 that if you were of the right age it seemed like the best novel you were ever allowed to play. You know, and I think that that is if you were if you were the kind of kid who maybe had read like a few Magic the Gathering novels, worshipped J.R.R. Tolkien, and just like generally were a pretty avid reader, the idea that there was this this world of such like seeming again for the mm-hmm, time mm-hmm. depth and nuance. Like I was in sixth grade too. Like that's not even a yeah. full fledged teenager. I didn't even have pimples yet. Right. I could grow a mustache, but I didn't. You know. <laughs> My skin was <laughs> baby socks. <laughs> um, I think that, like, like, yeah, I mean, that's, so, that's my vague defense of Final Fantasy VII, a game that I hope at some point you will kick the shit out of on this <laughs> podcast. I'm ready. <laughs> I actually, like, Final Fantasy VII is fine, but I don't think it is anywhere near as good as people say. And I feel like generally... I think, no, I think that it no. is, is seminal is the issue. It is... It I think is, it is seminal for people, but not for games. I mean, it's seminal for games in a marketing capacity. Yeah, I'll give you that. Yeah, and I think that it, I think it certainly was seminal for games insofar as that it was a reason that people bought PlayStations, both here and in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is certainly not not nearly as impressive of a game, I think, as as some of the Final Fantasies that came before and after. But we are not here to talk about Final Fantasy. No. What are we here to talk about? We're here to talk about games that we're playing right now. And uh, I actually haven't been playing a ton of games recently. We have day jobs. I know. This isn't our main gig, which I know is going to shock many of you out there. But, uh, so I've been kind of falling behind in my game playing, but I understand, Matt, that you have been playing a game called Neo. 
I think that's how it's pronounced. Neo. I think it's it's stylized in a very particular way. It's like capital N, uh, lowercase i, capital O, capital H. Maybe. Like Neo. It might. Yeah. No. I think that like there is a pronunciation. I don't. They might have said the words in the game at yeah. some point in one of the cutscenes, but I don't know because I don't usually watch the cutscenes. So they're good. They're excellent. Well directed. <laughs> Um, Neo is a game in which you play as this, uh, this, uh, explorer from somewhere from the, in the British Isles. I cannot tell if he is Irish or Scottish because his accent seems to fluctuate and but he doesn't he is say a much. Westerner. He's a Westerner. Um, supposedly this game actually has a fascinating development cycle. It was development on it began like over 10 years ago. Uh, for I think it was like in a, uh, for the PlayStation 3 and it was originally based on an unfinished Akira Kurosawa great film director you know one of the the greatest film directors of all time um, it was based on a Akira Kurosawa's unproduced screenplay or unfinished and unproduced I believe uh, that was about a blonde westerner who makes his way through a uh, uh, basically medieval Japan. That movie was released as The Last Samurai. Well, I think that there are some connections <laughs> between this game and The Last Samurai. Um, if it weren't a Japanese game, you could probably critique it pretty heavily for its kind of like cultural implications. Hmm. Uh, but apparently it's deviated drastically from that. It was an RPG initially, then I think it or JRPG um, it's changed studios and hands as it exists today it is um, produced by Team Ninja the Dead or Alive Ninja folks Gaiden. and Ninja Gaiden is that how you pronounce it? I, that's, how I, that's how I pronounce it well I've never been to Japan you have that is how I pronounce doesn't, it doesn't Gaiden just mean side story? yeah yeah um, but the Xbox Ninja Gaiden yes uh, creators Though, Team Ninja as it exists now, does not have uh, Itagaki anymore. Who's Itagaki? He is the director of Ninja Gaiden and uh, Dead or Alive. Okay. So he's a man who loves large breasts and sick-ass swords. He is always photographed wearing sunglasses and has John Romero-like flowing locks. That's interesting. Yeah, and he uh, left. He was he left slash was like forced out uh, of Team Ninja um, and went on. It's unclear, uh, but then he went and made Devil's Third, which was a Wii U oh, exclusive I with for- a very troubled development. I forgot about Devil's Third. Yeah, and so uh, things did are going that- great for Itagaki. Did that ever even come out? It did. On the Wii U. Can it's- we get a copy? Yes, uh, I've looked into it, but it's always a little bit more than I want to spend. How much also, is that? it has... Apparently, the part that Itagaki says is good, it's one of those things where everybody reviewed and was like, this game's kind of bad, and then there's all these interviews where Itagaki's like, but the good part's the multiplayer, but like, who's playing Devil's Third for me to experience yeah. the good parts? It's, it's online multiplayer, I Yeah, see. it is. Alright. But anyways, the existing Team Ninja is a very different organization than the one that made those games, but potentially has some of the same ideals. And it sounds like this game was maybe started when Itagaki was there. Uh, certainly possible. I'd be curious to know what his influence on it. Uh, the game is rightfully compared to Dark Souls um, yeah. in its combat. I think Dark Souls is sort of like the uh, the. I want to use the word litmus, but that's not correct. 
it's sort of like the the example that we give for anything which you have a stamina bar that coincides with your your sprinting ability your blocking yeah um, that, that that sort of animation priority where it's like you, yes you monster hunter style you press the button and then this animation is happening this dude is swinging the sword this is this is very much an animation priority game yeah you're locked in i would say that like the depth of its combat is for better or for worse um much more much deeper and more complicated than dark souls okay i guess that that can only be for better you can play it you can kind of like tweak it to your play Mm -hmm. Um, as you want. There are elements of it that I wish were incorporated into Dark Souls, and there are elements of Dark Souls that I wish this game had taken to heart. Okay, so Uh, let's start with the parts of this that you like, that you think think outdo Dark Souls at its own game. Well, this is is where... Well, first of all, it runs at 60 frames per second. Great great start. This is actually... (laughs) I, I actually can't explain to what a degree that makes a difference, and the ways in which this already elevates it above many... I don't, does Dark Souls 3 run at 60 frames per second on modern consoles? Uh, I don't believe so. Okay, that's a shame. Uh, it's It does this interesting thing where it'll run at 60 frames per second, but you'll notice that monsters at a distance yeah. chug, they're running at like 10 frames per second. Right. It's, it's fascinating, and it's like, after a certain point, they seem, they're the same, I don't think that they're a lower polygon count, I don't think there's anything like that happening, but as you get closer, they, like, the frames per second, like, jumps, yeah. and eventually it's 60. Um, but that is, that is a huge improvement, if we were really just going to take, a, if we were looking at this as, like, a, a new iteration on, on Souls yeah. by a new team, that is a huge improvement. Something that people on the PC have been enjoying since uh, that patch came out for Dark Souls 1. Yeah. That well, fan patch. If we were real gamers, we'd probably be playing on a PC. You're not wrong. <laughs> we are not real gamers. Zero stars. Zero stars. Not for gamers. Yes, not for gamers. Um, they are not gamers. I give them zero stars. <laughs> I think that... Uh, I, so I think that a lot of the, a lot of the, the core mechanics are satisfying the same way that Dark Souls and Bloodborne are satisfying. Bloodborne is probably a, a much better kind of like corollary for this. Um, is that because of the speed? Like this is a faster it game is a, than Dark this Souls? This is a very fast game. It is much faster than Dark Souls. It is a very fast game. Even when you are like heavily armored, you are still playing faster than the fa- than like the fastest um, build on Darks in Dark Souls. Whoa. It is very fast. It's much closer to Bloodborne. But where and and I appreciate that about it. Um, it there are two things that I'm not crazy about. And granted, like I've played this for quite a few hours. Yeah, it's in the tens. Um, but I do not find the parrying nearly as satisfying as it is in Bloodborne. It is very um, Bloodborne's parrying is just like the pinnacle of Dark Souls parrying, and it it's it's such a core part of that of, of that gameplay loop um it's not very satisfying in this so tell me what the pairing is like in dark soul i mean uh in bloodborne and then like how how is this different the first of all pairing is not built into this game you actually have to unlock an ability that lets you do that it's a bad start um yes exactly it's not something that you are just taught or are encouraged to learn from the start uh whereas in in dark souls pairing is not essential but certainly extraordinarily useful, and you'd be a fool to play that game on your second playthrough without it. 
I can totally understand if on your first playthrough it takes you a really long time to understand parrying. Yeah. But, like, it's going to speed up your progress for that game immensely. Uh, in Bloodborne, parrying is just part of the... It's just part of the rhythm of, the, of combat. It is absolutely necessary and encouraged. Um, in fact, it's... it's it, I believe... Okay. Readers, listeners... Let me know if I'm wrong. Country right man. in. I believe that... So the core pairing mechanic in Bloodborne is just relegated to your, your left trigger. Yeah, it's yeah. your gun. You fire the gun. It's your shotgun. So you just do it at the moment in the enemy's animation when they are vulnerable and it staggers them. There may be another one that I'm forgetting, but it's the equivalent... That's the equivalent of... In Dark Souls, when you lash out with your right, shield. Right, like the Dark Souls or, or even yeah. Breath of the Wild has a similar parry mechanic. But because of the speed, and Breath of the Wild's parry mechanic, I actually think, is is fascinating and it's fun. It's really fantastic. Um, and yet again, something that much like Dark Souls is not really entirely necessary for progression through the not game. Not at all, but man... When Up you... to a certain point that I don't think we can talk about because you haven't finished Breath of the Wild yet. When you start parrying those Guardians, though... Oh, it feels good. Whew. You feel super-powered. Unreal. Um, and there is a key moment when... It's when you see the blue light flash. Yeah. That, that's when you gotta... That's when you gotta... Um, Great stuff. So, Neo plays... Really, maybe... maybe So, Bloodborne maybe isn't the best corollary for Neo... Possibly the best corollary is playing Dark Souls on the fastest build. Just a... You like, mean, a naked build. So, yeah, I always play Dark Souls. Uh, having played hundreds of hours of Dark Souls, uh, just constantly restarting that game, and I, I just love going through the opening sections. It's so satisfying to me, the first Dark Souls. But um, I've kind of just always gravitated towards very fast builds. Yeah. I really like, like using somebody who just has... Like very limited armor and a dagger or something else that just does a lot of bleed damage and just being extremely fast. And so is this a game for me? Um, I, this is so hard to address. Uh, so the biggest fault with Neo um, my, so there's two big faults with Neo. One is less of a fault and it's more of just like if we're going to compare this to Souls and we're going to compare it because you should only ever compare something to the best in yeah. a series. If we compare this to Dark Souls 1, the level design is bullshit in Neo. It is. It is. There are literal levels. That's the biggest difference is that Dark Souls is a world. That first um, Dark Souls, yes. And I think that's his greatest strength. Absolutely astounding. Yes. Um, Neo is a series of levels that you enter through a like static map that you move around with a cursor. Okay. Um, there are missions, there are submissions. You can return to any of the levels at any time. The levels do tend to loop on themselves, like Dark Souls does in a large scale. Mm -hmm. um, it's cool. It's not... No, it's not cool. It's just like... It's just basic level design. The level design is not bad. It's not a particularly vertical game, not nearly as vertical as Dark Souls can be. Um, there's a lot of... There's no jump button, but there is a lot of falling off of strategic ledges. Mm -hmm. But there's never the sense of, of exploration or risk that's inherent to, to the exploration or to the, for lack of a better term, platforming um, in Neo. And it's like exploring a level just isn't that engaging. It's just sort of like... It's just a checklist of moving from place to place. 
and sometimes there are branching paths but not you don't feel as though if you take one path you are putting your your life at risk right your hours at risk as you do with dark souls it's the same that because every level is has has like a set difficulty i see so you're only you're you're the level is never going to grow more difficult as you move mm. through it, other than like the general, you know, progression of a, of a level growing more difficult, but there's no there's no larger world with with clearly kind of like, uh, or in the case of Dark Souls, like sometimes not so clearly like delineated changes of environment where where enemies are going to become, uh, uh going to just like knock you on your ass, mm-hmm. so. It makes for a much more contained experience. It's just it loses the sense of adventure and excitement. I think that I'd written about this before, but your the scope of the game is drastically diminished by this. Mm-hmm. There's a wonderful moment in Dark Souls when you're on top of the cathedral, when you're going up to the bell tower, mm-hmm. and you look down and you see everything that you have, you know. Every uh, the all the places, all the little locations that you have passed through over the course of your, you know, depending on if it's your first first playthrough and your me over the past forty hours of the game or over the past two hours of the game, depending on like how you're playing or how good you are, and it's an incredible sense of accomplishment and triumph, and not because you just got like a trophy on your PlayStation, but because it's you're reminded of everything the hell that you went through yeah. to get there and it's it's i find it more satisfying than beating bosses because it's it's a it's it's a form of storytelling it's a it's a literal reminder um it's a visual literal visual reminder neo has none of that neo has very difficult bosses and i'll talk about one of the boss fights um in a bit that i particularly loved but the there's not the same level of sort of uh, environmental storytelling, dynamic environmental storytelling to a degree, in Neo that there is in Dark Souls, and I find that deeply disappointing. I, as I like play more of, I guess, modern games is the wrong word, but I feel like we have we exist in a world now where most games are these open world games. Yeah. Or see, it feels like most if you're making well, a close ocarina of time, world. big budget game. The combination of Ocarina of Time and Grand Theft Auto 3 has yeah. just slowly overrun everything. And it becomes something where it becomes this, this sort of race to be like, how can I take this existing framework for a game and make it an open world game? And the ones that succeed at it, I think, do a really good job of establishing a narrative in the micro sense of like if we're taking like Grand Theft Auto for an example it's just like I outran the cops yeah. and I exploited their AI in this weird way or something or there was some sort of anomalous thing that happened and it was exciting um, so you have like a little story to tell yeah. but then there's a larger it's, story it's dynamically created through the system it just happened game. it just happened even yeah. if the systems are kind of broken oh, that's, the, too. that's the joy yeah. of it right it, but it's dynamic it's yes. happening it's yeah. a ton of fun so but then there's like this meta narrative of like the place has to be memorable enough for you to like locate that story somewhere so that somebody you can say it to somebody else and that they know where that story happened. And I think that, that that's a very interesting sort of thing, right? Because like 
anybody that has played video games long enough can tell you what the opening like one one in Mario is. Like they know it. Yeah. They have seen it. And I could draw it for you yes, right now. Of course you could and I'm it's sure, like a, it's like a poem that you've memorized. Yeah, it's like, just this it, yeah. strange little like pattern that you know. And so I think that we need to like games need to aspire to having that sort of just like by virtue of repetition, but also a place being distinctive, they need to locate you in a space so that when you tell a story about that space to somebody else, it encourages you and that person both to want to go back there. Yeah. Because you have a space where it happened. And sometimes if you have these levels that, it sounds like the levels aren't differentiated, they're relatively similar and they don't necessarily have distinctive bits in them. Yeah, there's nothing distinctive about them at all. Yeah, um, and it's and I don't want to imply that I think that Neo should be an open world game or even necessarily a game. I don't even know if I'd call Dark Souls open world so much as it is one big level. Dark Souls is one enormous level, and then you go to Honor Orlando, and then that's the second big level. Yeah, um, I think that that Neo does this weird thing where you have portions of a map. Uh, that you visit and you complete all the missions which are, you know, represented by little icons on the map and you just cursor over them and click X and you start the mission. And then you move on to another portion of the map. It's very Mario Brothers 3 or something like Uh that. Why they couldn't... Like, the fact that it's so mission-oriented when really, I don't... Like, the story and the individual missions are not engaging enough in in their narrative quality for me to really be paying attention. But there's also just, like, the environments are often repeated. And I'm sure there's someone out there who, just like there are people who who are nuts for Dark Souls lore, you know, are listening to us say this, or no one's listening to us say this. More likely, Um, but let's keep going. That, that are saying, you know, no, there's actually a whole lot going on in Neo that you just have to be attentive to. Um, all of Almost all of the dialogue is actually in Japanese. There's very little bit that's in English. That's uh, cool. They, it's very cool. Um, so it's all, it's all subtitled. That makes it a little bit more difficult to follow when there's subtitled, like, uh, flavor text and or... You know, kind of like like a dialogue going on while you're in the middle of a battle. Um, <laughs> understandably, I think that that Neo just needs to be more attentive to how how its levels intersect and how they tell stories, um, kind of, or how they let you tell your story playing the game. Yeah. Uh, right now, they just and I don't, I don't think this is going to change. It's just they're underwhelming. Um, and I think that that's a good aside for us to have gone off on, actually. But I do want to address uh, two other things about Neo. Okay. One is the other big fault that I see in the game, which is that there's a loot problem that feeds into a statistics problem. Mm. Um, I do not understand one of the one of the be- beautiful things about Dark Souls is your gradual understanding of the various numbers and statistics. Yeah. Um, and at the, the same time, the like. Does anyone really understand like whether or not they should make the thing raw or elemental? Yeah. God, not no. exactly. Not exactly. But there's also a sense that, that everything that you get in Dark Souls is going to matter. It's going to be of some sort of use to you. Yeah. Um, you, you are scraping together to use everything. Uh, Neo 
gives you so much loot. I have collected in my maybe like 11 hours or 12 hours with this game, I have collected hundreds of swords. Hundreds of swords. And swords are only one of five types of weapons you can wield in this game. It is absurd, the amount of loot. Like, you kill, like, a little spider, and that spider is, like, carrying a spear for whatever reason. Yeah. And it's there's no easy way to sort it other than by level, rarity, and, like, some other stats. All of which are, like, equally obscure. Like, I don't really understand, like, what the rarity is if it isn't, like, of a greater benefit. Right, because like, it, it doesn't necessarily correlate to yeah, damage. Yeah, to, to damage, by no means, nor does level. Um, so, I become extraordinarily frustrated with that. Uh, I end up selling most of it just to try and clear out my inventory and in the process of probably like ditching some really good stuff um, because I sell it en masse I don't go through right. when they allow you to be like sell all uncommon or below items oh uh, and you just it's ditch a, it oh dude I, I just and I'm sure that there's some good stuff in there that's probably high level but because I'm selling based on rarity because that's the easiest way to do it like so I don't know like and that's sort of like it's a huge frustration of mine because that seems like such an obvious issue with it um, in every review that I've like or or piece that I've read on you know, like it is cited as being an issue it's not like it's it's I assume that this is a Diablo influence and it is just completely unnecessary because you have so much shit that you are never using not because it's not wise to use it but because it's not fun to sort through the inventory it's the anti Resident Evil 4 <laughs> in that regard yeah um, I hate it I think it's really irritating it it drives me up a wall. Um, yeah, but if, I, if you get too much of something, if everything is presented to you as being worth something, everything you own is worthless. Yeah. Yeah. There's no sense of, of earning something or getting excited about a drop. And you want to feel like you have earned things in yeah. this game. Um, much Every like enemy needs to be a, like an Overwatch loot box. And like... Like, you know, oh, okay. so when you play Overwatch, I'd right? say every boss needs to be like an Overwatch loot box. Potentially, but I feel like every, every guy out there, because I think that one of the f most fun things about a game that gives you loot, like a, like a Dark Souls, yeah. is that sometimes you kill like a random skeleton when you play like the early part of that game over, yeah. and sometimes they'll just drop something like good. Like the, one Which of those, is nice. One of they'll those, drop one thing. Yeah, but what I'm saying yeah. is, these, these if, if everybody's dropping a thing or nothing... It's like, every time I open a loot box in Overwatch is not a good experience, but sometimes it's a very good experience. Yeah. And so it's like, I don't mind opening a lot of boxes, because I am a sucker for the one time that I open it, it's just like, this is incredible. But if I'm getting a bunch of stuff every time, it makes it hard to tell what's incredible and get excited about it. Yeah, I have no that. idea what's incredible in this game. Um, it regularly, like, if you're if you're standing over a new weapon, it'll, like, give you an up or a down arrow to yeah. let you know. But I'm not even sure what the up or a down arrow... I assume that that's just a damage thing. Right. But it's actually not clear, because each, each weapon also comes with a number of stat buffs um, that yeah. correlate. And there's a depth there that I admire, but it is just drowned in all of like like literally you kill an enemy they literally explode with loot it's like when you it's like when you open a loot box in Overwatch it just goes and then just like like orange loot just like explodes out of them um, 
And this is in addition to the the souls that you're collecting. I'm air quotes souls. I don't remember what they're called in Neo. It's like yeah. or Amrita, Amrita or something. Sure. Uh, it sounds like an Italian liqueur. I like um, souls, but yeah, they're essentially souls. Uh, so all that being said, I feel like I complained about Neo a lot. Neo still has moments that I will remember forever. There's this one, this one submission. Where like um, I wish I could remember this dude's name, but he's like this this like well known warrior actually from history. A lot of the characters in Neo historical characters. It's kind um, of that uh, Assassin's Creed. Like Da Vinci was actually into assassinations. I think it's yeah, yeah. More I don't know. I don't know Japanese history well enough. I know Hattori Hanzo is in there, um, and like so you have like it's during a, a civil war in Japan's history, and. You get to fight against this one dude, and um, up to this point, you've basically just been completing levels. This is a submission, and I remember very clearly that like it it opens, and on the loading screen, it just says this Japanese proverb: "What I thought was a ghost was merely dried grass." Whew. And then you're launch, you, you like you press X to start the mission. I'm expecting like a mission, and I'm just like in this open field wow. with like like dried grass like rustling in the wind <laughs> like like half dead grass this isn't like live like yeah. Legend of Zelda green as is, is the Emerald Isles like and there's just a man standing on the horizon in like samurai gear and I have to fight him and I fought this dude you just sold a copy of this game that I, is I incredible. fought this it's amazing I wish I I wish I had been able to like save right outside of that I think I can go back to it any time but now I'm overpowered but, like, it's at the end. It's right before you leave the first part of the continent. Um, so it's, like, at the end of this section. And it's just you, one-on-one. You're not fighting a monster. It's, that, it's like, that classic thing of, like, you should be afraid of, like, the enemies that are your size, yeah. not the giant enemies. Um, one-on-one, you just... It is 100% learning this guy's tells and getting behind him and stabbing him. I, of, like, the 12 hours I've played, at least three hours went into playing that. I would not leave until I finished it. I was so devoted to it. And there's this point when I realized early on that when he's standing on the horizon, you can pull out your bow and you can hit him in the head. It doesn't take off much damage, but it knocks him on the ground and you can go up and stab him for quite a bit of damage. I stopped doing this after a while because I felt it was dishonorable. (laughs) I did not... I would not do that. And so... I fought him and I fought him and I fought him and I finally beat him and they give you these dumb little emotes in case if you want to like play online with people in a Dark Souls way. Yeah. So they give you like there's like 18 emotes that you start with and you learn more. After I beat him I used this is the only time I've ever used an emote. I bowed. Yes. Of course you did. (laughs) And it was that was a truly satisfying experience and it was also the best level design that game has because it is nothing but a field that is a beautiful field. There's like one rock. Yeah. Um, the everything just just like looks nice. Like there's the sun is setting, and you just fight this one dude who is no bigger, no smaller than you. Yeah. It is astounding. It is. It's apparently part of the beta demo that they put out. Huh. That like so people 
literally it should be the thing that sold that game. Yeah. And um, no, I love it. I love that. And I think of that so fondly. I cannot remember the dude's name. <laughs> it doesn't matter though. Like, but it was powerful. Yeah. It felt. I like. I felt. It's like. It's like playing Alien Isolation, where I start thinking about the AI too much. Which is a great. Which is a great experience. Yeah. Yes. When you start thinking of the AI as something that is functioning like on another level, right. it is deeply satisfying. Well, and I think that like. You know, that's one of those interesting things where that's both a really cool visual, and I think that it's a very, like, human sort of thing where you're in a situation and you just go, like, it's me and this other person, and, and one of us is walking away. So, yeah. like, there's, there, it's tapping into it's a very essential... very Kurosawa. Yeah, yeah. and it's a, an essential human sensation. Yes. You know, and not that I've been in a lot of fields where I need to stab somebody, but in any sort of competitive environment, you have that sort of just, like, all right, at a certain point, it's going to come down to this. Yeah. And so you, you immediately know what needs to happen. Uh, and what's cool about a video game is that it can it can foreground that against you have just chopped the arms off of multiple enormous demons. Yes. Right? And so it then is, all of a sudden yes. when you when you bring it down to this very human thing, it can be incredibly satisfying. It made me want to play Bushido Blade. <laughs> so I've had a weird thing recently where I've wanted to play Bushido Blade. Really? Yeah. Do we? We can shoot a plane. I I might you have, have a PlayStation a, One. Uh, I have actually two PlayStation Ones. Oh yeah, that's right. One's a good CD player. Uh, yes, one is the supposed audiophile grade CD player. Yeah. Though so, uh, that's a story for another time. But don't believe the hype. <laughs> uh, <laughs> All right. So I talked a lot about Neo, and I haven't really asked you anything about what you have been playing because I know that you have not been been you haven't had a lot of time. And I know you've been working on Zelda, but maybe now is I yeah. Feel like Zelda is its own podcast. I, I am churning through Zelda, which I think is we could have a podcast that's just called "We Play Zelda for the Rest of Our Lives." <laughs> uh, and I, I will suffice it to say, in this moment, The Legend of Zelda: Breath of the Wild is one of the greatest video games ever made, and. Yeah. It is an achievement beyond almost anything else I've ever seen. And, and one that will inevitably, despite all the praise, still be underappreciated. Yes. There is no way to appropriately appreciate Breath of the Wild. And I, if you are somebody out there and you burned through Breath of the Wild, I, have, uh, I played it obsessively for a while and then life got in the way and I kind of stepped away from it. And I've been coming back to it in small bursts. I cannot recommend enough that you return to it having had some distance because my personal experience is that I was kind of shocked all over again by how well made it is and just what an incredible just genuine adventure they managed to make so if you have stepped away come back you will probably have a great time all over again still I think about that game constantly yes I think about it all the time it's a so I don't, I don't think it's worth talking about that, but there is something that I wanted to ask you about because when and we could probably talk about this game for a while too. But on a recent like sweltering day, I walked up the four flights of stairs to get to your apartment, and you sat me down. Yes, at, next to your your brand new twenty twenty seven inch a twenty seven inch yeah. iMac computer. Yeah, is that five K? It is five five Ks. And you booted up this this very pretty little game. Yes, called uh, Devil Daggers, an extremely low resolution video game called Devil Daggers, which um, is really the game that I've been playing the most of, just because it is a game that you can play the entirety of. Like a single run in Devil Daggers will take you anywhere from between one second to at best five minutes if you're some sort of god. 
Savant. Um, yeah, yes. especially your first run. Oh, your first run, you're done in 10 seconds. So I can yeah. always just have that thing running and, and hop in. Devil Daggers is a love letter to Quake, basically, if, if you've ever played mm. Quake on the PC. Um, it has that real uh, software-accelerated 3D graphics look where it's just the it's just enormous blocky pixels on low polygon models. Um, and it looks incredible. Um, if you are the sort of person who played those old PC games, um, the design it, is fantastic. The use of, of the, the like, use of lighting though, yes. too. you see a little red hearth of light in the distance yep. and you need to go, f- you both need to go towards it and are terrified of what yeah. you will find. So this game, you're just on a circular platform in the middle of, terrifying empty space if you fall off a platform you die the only thing that you have at your disposal is your hand which shoots flaming daggers Uh, if you hold the button and that's the mouse button it's a first person shooter if you hold the button you shoot a spray of these daggers and if you press the button it's a shotgun Um, I wouldn't even call it a spray it's like a stream yeah it's just like this steady just like pinpoint accuracy just shot Uh, and you are so fast. Uh, this game, the speed of this game is, in a modern sense, unbelievable. Um, it's probably still slow compared to Quake 1. Uh, but in if you have not been playing Quake 1 lately, this game is faster than anything you've played. And it's cool because it looks like a heavy metal album cover. A bunch of skulls are flying at your face, and you need to murder every single skull. Uh, if something hits you, you die, and it's basically Geometry Wars meets Quake. Uh, I cannot recommend it highly enough, but what's neat about this game, and what's really weird about it, for me, is that it is one of the best examples of sound design that I've played. Um, like, it's probably my favorite Mm. sound design example since Mirror's Edge, which, at some point, I should probably talk about this footstep sound in Mirror's Edge. We can do a sound design episode. Yeah, because it's great. But uh, what I would say about Devil Daggers is that it is a game that I could play for the rest of my life and I would still have fun doing it because I'm never going to be great at it. My best time is like a few minutes, like a bit over two and a half minutes. Mm. Um, So once you get hit, you die, you restart, and you try and last longer. And that's the whole game. So I've gotten like two minutes, 30 seconds, I think is my best time. But there's this thing that happens where you get an upgrade. So these enemies drop... I haven't gotten far enough to actually get an upgrade, so you have to explain kind of how that works. Enemies drop gems. Uh, When you are not firing your gun, the gems suck towards you. When you are firing your gun, they stay on the ground. Uh, Once you collect a certain number of gems, you get a better gun. Do you walk up to a dude and he says, What you buying? No, you are just given it. And the process by which you get it, the moment in which you get the better gun, uh, is one of my favorite things I've experienced in a game in a long time. Because it, the game, like, almost imperceptibly, it feels like it slows down, but I can't tell if that's my own brain just, like, being suckered by the fact that the sound kind of like does this like low suction like you know when you have a video that goes from full speed to slow motion and there's that just kind of like yeah and it feels like you dunked your head under the ocean yeah and suddenly it's just like the focus it's like everything both becomes less in focus and infinitely sharp 
and so the sound just kind of sucks out and suddenly all of the colors invert so everything becomes like electric green and you immediately are aware that you are doing more damage like the it's because of the way the game works and because it's so twitch based and because the difference between surviving and not is knowing how many shots it takes for something to go down the minute that the number of shots it takes to bring something down in like decreases you feel like a fucking god <laughs> and so it's just like all of a sudden all the colors go crazy the sound drops out and you are just murdering things so does the colors stay inverted no it like fades back in like it's it's like suddenly but you keep but you keep the power up yeah okay so it's like that sensation of like when you're a little kid and you're at the park and you like come out of the park and all of a sudden there's like a terrifying dog there and it's growling at you and you have that moment where it's like you kind of don't remember anything like it's just pure adrenaline right and everything just like sucks out of you and then you kind of like resurface and it's like now I'm like more aware yeah it simulates that just using the sound and the color do you you play with headphones or do you use it Uh, this game does really good job with stereo sound um, and so, because you're just on a circular platform in the middle of nothing, knowing where the next threat is coming from is very important. And so, when you play it with the headphones, it just you you are all the more attuned to where things are next to you. That's really cool. It is a great video game. I uh, <laughs> I remember saying at one point that I wish it were on consoles, and I think you laughed at me. <laughs> I when I played, I had to reduce the mouse sensitivity by half. <laughs> yeah. It. It is the it sort of thing, it could not exist uh, uh, outside of, of the PC or, which I respect. in this specific case, the Mac, which is very nice, because it is just so centered around and so attuned to the ability to just whip that mouse around. Yeah. Um, and the only advantage you have is that you can turn faster than the things that are trying to kill you. That is it. And so... I, I, what I really want to do is build an arcade cabinet with a trackball. That would be fun. And uh, just a four-way directional stick. Man. And just it plays that, and it plays Tempest. Yeah, but I, I kind of think I could like retrofit an old like grid cabinet to do this. Hmm. Yeah, the grid. The grid. People don't talk about the grid very often. Not since the 1980s. It was all about the grid in the 1980s. That was the 90s. I'm just thinking about like infinite grids, infinity grids. It's infinity grid. It's like that old. It's like the thing that you see in every retro style. Oh, thing. Like, it's like yeah, that, yeah, yeah, the grid that just—it's like yeah. Tron. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Chessboard. That I doesn't... live on the infinity grid. <laughs> uh, <laughs> brought to you from the infinity. Yeah, grid. it's coming to you straight from the infinity grid into Zero your stars. eyes. All right, I think that we are. We're at the hour mark, so I feel like we should probably start wrapping up, but we could do some reader mail. I think we should uh, go or to listener the, go, mail. Let's go to the mailbag. All right, let's go to listener mail. What do we um, got here? All right. Here, Bob, how about you read this so, one for us, Matt? Sounds good. John Barron from Manhattan writes, First time... First of all, long-time listener, second-time writer. Oh, love that's what you that's Love what you guys do. Great. Keep up the great... Yeah, we don't need to get into that. Um, there's just lots of praise. It just goes on forever. <laughs> it does. Half a, half a page. Wow. Uh, and he sent this through the mail. I mean, su- such a small font on this, though. Too. It's, just, it's incredible. <laughs> well, thank you, John Barron, for the praise. Anyway, back to his letter. Uh, 
I was listening to episode 3.45 from October 89 and had a follow-up question to Bob's point about the Ninja Turtle arcade beat-em-ups. I have fond memories of sinking my allowance into these games with friends at the arcade. Is there something wrong with nostalgia influencing your love of a game? Thanks, John J. Barron. Well, thank uh, you, John. Thank you, John, first yeah. of all, for writing in and being such a long-time listener. I think there are two questions in here, uh, and we can tackle them however you want. I think the first question is is implicit that we should review as we you know because we haven't done this in like a decade. Great point. What is what is it that Bob thinks is so shitty about the Ninja Turtle arcade beat 'em ups? I think they are terrible video games. Okay, go on. I think that you uh, need to. So I, I do not like. You any... don't have the cachet to be able to just say that at this point. Oh, okay. I'm working up to it. Yeah. I I think that the Ninja Turtle arcade video games and their various. Uh, console ports throughout the years are bad video games because they are imprecise video games. Um, and it is consistently difficult in those beat-em-ups, other beat-em-ups like the Simpsons beat-em-up, uh, there's some X-Men games that play like yeah. this. Anything where you have movement into and out of the screen but are on a two-dimensional side-scrolling plane I think is a bad video game. Uh, I can't think of a single example where... Like Streets of Rage? Yeah, I, I kind of like. I'm I'm pretty mad on Streets of Rage as well. I feel like mm. the thing, anything where I feel like I cannot be a hundred percent sure that my guy is lined up with the person I am punching, and thus I can punch like behind or in front of them because I just moved up or down yeah. kind of wrong, is a bad experience. I think that I, I mean obviously to a degree these games were designed poorly <laughs> to eat quarters. Um, I think that there's the, that's something that's undeniable. For sure. I don't disagree with you that I think that there is an imprecision there that is exhausting um, and requires... I think that you can adapt to it, but it requires far too much work on, on your part to adapt to a flaw in the game design. Yet... I have a lot of fun with these games. Yeah. And we haven't even gotten to the second question, which is about nostalgia. But aside from that, nostalgia aside, I played Streets of Rage 2 for the first time only several years ago. Really? And I had a, I had a goddamn blast with that song. <laughs> I almost dropped the F word there. But I, I had a I real... I already dropped the F word. We're dar- All right. I had this a fucking blast. This is the explicit tag. <laughs> I had a good time playing that game, okay. I gotta say. I had a blast playing it. Uh, and I think that maybe it's just like that because there's a dearth of couch co-op in video mm. games generally these days. Yeah. Do you really? You have never had fun playing any of those games. I. It's not that I think that they are inherently unenjoyable. It's just that I always find that there is a point where I feel like I am being fought, like the controls are fighting me as much as the other the actual enemies in the game are. Yeah. Like, I feel like I'm making mistakes that the game is just designed in this way where it's like, yeah, sometimes you're going to miss. And that's not a satisfying sensation for me. Like, I, I, I want... If you're going to give me a thing where the entire point... And, like, this is what video games are in my mind, is just a collection of ways that I can interact with a digital thing. Yeah. Right? Touching them with your gun. Yes, I want to touch the game. Like, I want it to feel really, really tight. And so when yeah, whenever there's that. slop in that, I, I feel disappointed. I understand that. I mean, I always... And I think that there is a cheapness to those games because of the way they were designed. The fact that when you use a special move, it 
you know, you lose health because of that. First of all, I want to know the ludonarrative reason for that. Like, why is it then when Leonardo swings his swords, it hurts him? <laughs> like, I forgot about that. That's yeah, it's and it, it's designed around the quarters. The, the yeah, you want to pump the quarters in, but it, it's retained. Yeah, you gotta for, have a risk reward. Yeah, I suppose. I don't think that it's it's quite rewarding enough in these scenarios. Yeah. So I think the other question that um, John Barron gets at is. Was it John Barron or John Bannon? I think it's John Barron. John Barron. Yeah, no, I, I don't want any sort of association with the current regime. John Bannon. <laughs> None at all. Um, John Barron also sort of addresses, or asks this question of like, when we... Is there anything inherently wrong with enjoying games for the sake of nostalgia? The obvious answer is no. Of course not. Yes. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that. If anybody tells you there is... They're an asshole, or us, maybe five years ago. Yeah, <laughs> but I repeat myself. A hundred percent accurate, and and they're they're not a good friend, no. unless they're us five years ago. <laughs> I uh, I think the question is whether like there are that many games that you will return to very often for nostalgia, because nostalgia is, is is subject to the law of diminishing returns. Um, I don't think that like like I would get I'd have a fucking blast booting up Turtles in Time for on an, an SNES mm-hmm. like and playing through it once. If I were able to download Turtles in Time onto my PlayStation Four, it would immediately ruin many of my memories. <laughs> undoubtedly, that's so funny. Yeah, I think that it's like you can have a fond memory of something yeah. because of nostalgia, but if you consistently continue to play it, uh. And you don't acknowledge that the reason you feel positively about it is nostalgia, or discover that it's actually quite good. This like, is a, that's, and that's this the other yes, possibility. that is the other possibility. But like, unless unless this you is applicable to all media, continue to too. play it for a while and then have like that kind of critical reassessment. Um, I I I think that you and I both know, and I say you, John, both know that if you return to something. And are consistently returning to it. Nostalgia is not enough to sustain it forever. So, you can have fond memories of something based on nostalgia, and I think that's totally legitimate. But I think that if you're going to insist that something is good solely because of nostalgia, you should play it again and form a real opinion about it in today's context. So you can say, well, I think it's great in the sense that I used to play it all the time with my brother. Mm-hmm. But I will acknowledge that potentially it is a product of its time or actually it is not that good. I would say that replaying Final Fantasy VII is a case study yes. in this. But I think yeah. that for a lot of people that's the case because they realize the truth. <laughs> I think... And it is, it's important. I think in, in any media, and I, I think people do this a lot with movies and it drives me nuts. Um, in any media, you cannot return to something for nostalgic reasons and not continue to reevaluate it critically. Yes. It is, that's, you owe it to the media to do this. And I'm sure that I sound like an asshole saying this, but you do owe it to the media you owe it to, to engage it and to yourself. Um, that doesn't mean that you can't continue to love a shitty thing for nostalgic reasons, but you need to, rec- like Bob was saying, recognize it for what it is. So, John, 
I hope that answers your question. Um, I'm sorry we didn't get to your first letter. I don't even know when that came in, but we can. Yeah, you know, I might have gotten lost in the post. I'm gonna, you know, I'll call a few apartments that I used to live in back in the '80s, and we'll see if we can we'll figure, figure that out. We can figure that out, John. Uh, but please write in again. We'd love to get your third. And uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. This has been the Zero Stars Podcast, episode zero point one. Is that it? We close. Yeah, it? I actually have no idea how to end it. All right. Yeah.